you people are too kind. I kind of just want to like circle up the chairs and have a conversation instead of standing up here and talking like this, but this is our forum. So good morning again um, to those of you who are visiting this morning. Welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Karen Guess, and if I haven't met you, I would love to say hi. I am a member here, and I really am looking forward to the chance to serve in this community a little bit this year. I'll be um, here about 10 hours a week, just learning mostly from the people who lead this church, but having a chance to connect as well in some ways um, with the community. So I'm excited and grateful, Um, and today it's my privilege to get to connect with you through the Word of God. And so let's begin by reading today's gospel. This is Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21, and I'm going to read from here because it's different than what I have printed. So, Peter came to him and said, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, The Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went out and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. I'll pray to open our time. Gracious God, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. Pray that your Holy Spirit would inhabit um, this room and these words that they would call us into a deeper freedom in you and that you would illuminate the path of forgiveness that you have for each one of us as we follow Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So we have a lot of longing in our world for forgiveness. Ernest Hemingway was good at naming true things about humans, and he opened Um, his short story, The Capital of the World, with this vignette about human longing for forgiveness. He writes, Madrid is full of boys named Paco, which is a diminutive or a nickname of the name Francisco. 
And there's a Madrid joke about a father who came to Madrid and inserted an advertisement in the personal columns of El Liberal, the paper, which said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. And how a squadron of police, the Guardia Civil, had to be called out to disperse the 800 young men, the Pacos, who answered the advertisement. There is so much hunger for forgiveness in our world. Matthew 18 is a story about the relational economy of God's kingdom that depends on forgiveness to function. It's a story about a king and his way of making things right in the kingdom. It's about a father who puts an ad in a paper inviting all of us named human to come to the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday or to come to the table at noon on Sunday because all is forgiven. The parable is an answer to Peter's question about people who are very close to him. It's about forgiveness in our real relationships. Micah set this up so well for us last week about the longing that we have for our life and community, but the reality that it always involves dissonance and unmet expectations and how it depends on our willingness to show up authentically and our ability to forgive and to be forgiven. So each of us in the kingdom is a Paco, arriving at the Hotel Montana needing forgiveness. But we are also, because of the kingdom economics, able to be a papa in the story, putting an ad in a paper and offering freely forgiveness to other people. Today, I invite us to come curious to this parable, asking a few questions together. What do we see about the king? What do we learn about forgiveness? And how do we work it out? As I've been preparing, I keep noticing the way that Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who, dot, dot, dot. Um, It's focused my attention on the king, whose attitudes and actions animate the kingdom. So the kingdom of God is like a king whose heart's desire is to come all the way to us and to settle accounts with his servants. The king comes with a heart to make things right and to take care of the things that are out of relational balance in his kingdom. Also, the king meets the untenable reality of our debt with his outlandish generosity. The numbers tell the story. One servant's debt is 10,000 talents. The other's debt is 100 denarii. That means probably very little to you. It means very little to me. But translated in today's wages, it means a little more. It's 100 million days wages and 90 days wages. So that's a big difference. Yes. <laughs> a million. And 10,000 talents is a Greek expression that's like us saying zillions. It was a turn of phrase. So he's saying the king is forgiving a debt that's past human calculation. And the king's mercy is beyond human understanding. And honestly, we're not usually in touch with the fact that we're that indebted to God. Um, The gospel tells us the truth about the zillion-sized mercy and love of God and the zillion-sized gap between our actual life and a life that reflects the king. Peter gives us another number. He says, how often should I forgive? Seven times? 
And Jesus says, no, 77. Um, And he's not just being cute. He is actually referring to a guy in Genesis named Lamech, who we don't probably know that much about because he doesn't have very many verses. But he's the archetype in the Old Testament for revenge. His famous quote, he's boasting to his two wives. He says, I killed a man for wounding me. And I killed a boy for striking me. So Cain will be paid back seven times, but Lamech 77 times. He's the Old Testament archetype of wild revenge that Jesus is calling on and saying forgiveness in God's kingdom should and does run as wild as the deepest, most violent revenge in the heart of humans. That's the deep, deep, deep well from which God extends forgiveness to us. So the king wants to settle accounts. He meets untenable debt with his wild generosity. And he's compassionate. He doesn't forgive from a head place. It's not his will or his, his decision, but it's from his heart. His heart goes out to this slave. He is kind and merciful. He is not grudging, not obliging. And finally, he expects that the forgiven servant will actually breathe in and ingest the gift of forgiveness and offer it back. The unforgiving servant, however, has been given the gift, but he has not absorbed it and he cannot offer it. The king's final actions show that if forgiveness doesn't generate reciprocal gifts from the one who's received it back out into the world, then the reconciling economy of God's kingdom doesn't function. It can't and it won't. So the parable grounds forgiveness firmly in God's nature, and it grounds our ability and even our requirement to forgive in our experience of having been forgiven. So it's worth talking about forgiveness which is a complicated topic. It's uh, not a very human impulse. So I want us for a minute to just think about your own, our own relationships. You might already have one in your head that's tricky. Um, Does a relationship come to mind, a place where the healing of forgiveness needs to pass between you and another person? Do you have a need to offer it? Do you have a need to receive it? Maybe both. Whatever you might be sitting with, from either angle, um, it's important to kind of reckon, I think, with why forgiveness has to be the answer, why it's God's answer and God's way to bridge the human failure that we all know in our relationships. First, relationships just need it. Um, When harm happens between two people, there is an injustice gap. Forgiveness closes the gap between what should have happened and what did happen. It's where we have been personally harmed and where we are personally offended that the concept of forgiveness applies. We are called to love and forgive our very own enemies, not someone else's, not even the vague systemic enemies in the world. Forgiveness gets in our grill because it gets down into the deepest, darkest places where we feel those gaps. But the relationships we have need it, and they need it because of the past. The past has a problem. (laughs) The past's problem, sorry, there's a paper, um, is that it's done. We can't go back to it. The servant ran up his debt in the past. There was no way to go back, and like him, we are really unable to fully undo past relational harm. 
Theologian Miroslav Volf wrote a book called Free of Charge. He grew up kind of at the fault lines of the Serbian-Croatian conflict, and he lost a brother tragically at a young age, and he has spent a lot of his theological career considering the topic of forgiveness. He says of the past, our deed remains forever done. Our life isn't, unfortunately, a motion picture in which we can, like a discerning editor, run a bad scene backward, cut it out, keep replacing it with better ones until we're pleased with the result and ready to show it to a critical audience. The reason a done deed can't be undone is simple. Unlike movie projectors, our lives don't have a reverse button. Time, in which we inescapably live, is irreversible. So forgiveness is God's way for us to deal with the past by remembering it, taking apart its members, looking at them, and then reassembling it in the light of God's mercy. Accepting the gap and releasing the other. For the forgiven and for the forgiver, it is not forgetting. It is remembering differently, at least for those of us who are human. But we resist. Our human economy wants to close gaps other ways. One way is to punish. And I was thinking about this and thought, what about the worst crime I could imagine? Like a ch losing a child to something horrible. And even if the offender was found guilty and sentenced to the worst possible sentence, it would not close the gap in my heart. It couldn't really resolve my pain as a parent. Punishment falls short of closing the gap. For those of us who are the offenders, we often really want to repay. If that same offender somehow had that impulse and tried to close the gap by maybe even offering their own child to the family that had lost theirs, certainly that would not close the gap. The loss would still be there, and repayment would have fallen short. So we have to have a way to reckon with the past. We just do. And our ways don't work. The way God gives us is forgiveness. And sometimes it's really difficult. So let's talk about the mechanics of forgiveness for a second, um, because I think it can be um, portrayed as something that happens really quickly. And I think for people who are called into forgiveness, when it's hard, it can sometimes feel like we're being asked not to tell the truth or not to um, deal with the, the true feelings um, that we have and the true loss that we have. So forgiveness researchers say that there are two parts to forgiveness, and you have to do them both. Um, and I think we tend to kind of skip the first part, which is to name the wrongdoing, to condemn it. It starts actually with naming the bigness of the offense, not glossing over it, entering in, condemning the reality of what's happened. We pronounce a verdict, and then we sit with that verdict. And that's an important part of moving through the process of forgiveness. And then, only then, is forgiveness to give the wrongdoer the gift of not counting the wrongdoing against them. The verdict stands, but the punishment is not enacted. Through forgiveness, we give or receive a gift of compassion, and the outcome is mercy. You see this in the king and the slave. He doesn't say, you don't owe me a debt. He just says, you don't have to pay the debt because, quite frankly, you can't. It's done. It can't really be made up for. 
So forgiveness packages truth, reality, even the pain of it, with compassion and mercy, and it creates freedom in relationships. I have a forgiveness story that involves our sweet, beloved Bill Murray, um, who went to be with Jesus in the spring. And um, I will do my best, my friend Kitty. I love you. I'm sorry, and thank you for letting me share this. (laughs) So Bill and Kitty mentored me and loved me. Um, They have since I was about 26, so that's a long time. That's like half my life ago. Um, And when my husband Doug and I were dating about 17 years ago, I wanted their input on our relationship. So I asked if we could have dinner. And they graciously invited me to come to their house. Doug and I were on a date that same day. I don't remember uh, what we were doing, but it was fun. And whatever it was, I made the decision that our fun was worth extending because I knew that Bill and Kitty were gracious people and it was okay if I was a little bit late. Except for that I wasn't a little bit late. I was an hour late to our dinner. I took advantage of their grace. At the end of the night, I was really bothered by what I had done and kind of the inconsiderate nature of it. I think Kitty stayed inside to do the dishes, but Bill walked me out and I said, Bill, I'm really sorry that I was so late. It was inconsiderate, and I apologize. And in the way that Bill could do, he slowed it down, and he looked me in the eye and told me the truth. He said, yes, it was inconsiderate. It put us in a bind because Kitty's dinner was ready, and we had actually planned our day around your timing. It hurt us, but I forgive you. You don't need to worry about it anymore, and it's not going to come between us. I won't bring it up. You're free. I think that was the first time I had had anyone hand forgiveness so directly to me. Bill gave me the gift of naming the impact of what I had done. We were not pretending that it was better than it was or glossing over it in Southern fashion. But he said, you're free. You don't owe us and it won't come between us. Our simple conversation about that simple incident was a poignant experience for me of how forgiveness works. Because there really was nothing I could do at that point to make up for my misdeed. And Bill's forgiveness didn't also make up for anything. It just set me and us free relationally. Even in a relatively small offense, Bill knew that forgiveness was importantly combining truth and reality with compassion and mercy And he relinquished the relational power that holding my lateness against me could have given him. Turns out far into the future, because we had lots of dinners. And sometimes I was late. (laughs) On my way home, as I sat with his honest forgiveness, I realized the impact. Because I was able to genuinely and freely feel the sorrow um, of my choice. I felt repentance because of his kindness which is imaging God to us if we think about Romans 2. And I wasn't worried about shame. I was no longer afraid that there would be a disconnection in our relationship going forward. And that freedom from shame is the gift of forgiveness. I like this quote by Hannah Arendt. She says, Forgiveness is the remedy against the irreversibility and the unpredictability of human actions. We can't go back and we are terribly unpredictable people. Think of this remedy as breathing. 
Forgiveness is respiration. When we inhale it, we are compelled by the grace of it to also exhale it. If we are not, then perhaps we haven't inhaled it, received it. We may end up stuck in shame, unable to receive, and also unable to give. The king is quite insistent that what has been given to the slave really needs to be extended to his peer. He forgives the debt freely that the slave can't pay, but he's not open to forgiving the slave's refusal to exhale forgiveness toward his peer. N.T. Wright says that forgiveness is like the air in your lungs. There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've just breathed out the previous one. If you insist on holding it, withholding it, refusing to give someone else the kiss of life that they may so desperately need, you won't be able to take any more in yourself, and you will suffocate very quickly. So to recap, forgiveness is not repayment. It is not punishment. It is reckoning with reality, and that can be hard, and it can take time. And then allowing for release and freedom based on our experience of having been compassionately seen, graciously freed, and fully forgiven by the king. So let's talk about working it out. When we engage it authentically, we struggle. Sometimes we struggle um, when we're the offender. We struggle here because we really do want to pay. It's so striking to me that in this parable, nobody asks for forgiveness. Nobody ever says, will you forgive me? Um, both of the servants beg, but they say, be patient with me. I will pay. We want our intention and our ability to pay to be enough, and it's just not. And when we're the offended one, and we struggle our way into the process of forgiveness, we inevitably come into contact with our pain. And it is then quite easy to begin insisting on our rights. The unforgiving servant continues to act on his rights, even after he's been forgiven. He has a right to be repaid, and so he demands it. He also has a right to throw his peer into prison, and so he does. As the offended, we want our rights, and it's hard to let them go. It is difficult to let go of the idea that if the other person is punished, the gap will close. We have rights, and we think we should be repaid. Peter was probably no different. Jesus says all of this to Peter in answer to his question. And we love Peter. We know Peter was a man with black and white thinking. He's a lot of either or. He's a man of extremes. And this question is no different. His question assumes that he's the good guy, like Super Peter, also very generous, and that his brother or sister is the bad guy. So he has set up this binary for Jesus and is like, hey, tell me how great I am. And Jesus answers him in a, a kind of similar black and white sort of way because he's got this giant mercy from this amazing king for giving this crazy debt and then this guy going out and doing like the dumbest thing ever, which would be to like shake his friend down for the cash that he owes him. So Peter goes head to head with Jesus and Jesus responds. But the problem I think for seeing ourselves in this story sometimes is that our relationships aren't that binary, usually. Usually an offense that we're struggling with is a both and, not an either or. The same painful incident in our past often involves a lot of dynamics of forgiveness. Maybe I need to forgive someone. They probably also need to forgive me. I probably need to forgive myself. 
And most likely, I need to talk to God about whatever it is. So there's a lot going on, and it can get kind of messy. And sometimes that makes it hard for us, I think, to really enter in. It makes it hard for us to slow down and to be with the grace of God because we have certain places where we like to kind of obsess. In my imagination, the unforgiving servant is a very fast man. He's dragged before the king. He has dust all around him. He begs huge. He just doesn't even think about the giantness of what he's asking for. And then he rushes out and grabs his friend by the throat and shakes him down. And it's all a rush, I think, because standing still for too long in front of this mercy and compassion would allow the weight of grace to bear down on him and he would be overcome. He would be humbled, stilled, changed, and then he would have to learn to move in the world in a vulnerable, graced, undefended, and forgiving way. We hide. It's a human game. That's what sin did to us at the very beginning. It turned us into hiders. And forgiveness calls us out of hiding. The reason we hide is because we are afraid. We think the things that we hide behind will keep us safe. When we come out from behind them, we feel vulnerable. Sometimes we feel our pain in new ways. The king, the compassionate and merciful king, waits to see if we'll come out from behind our masks of control from behind the identities that we have held tightly, sometimes really reflected in the relational patterns that we've used to defend ourselves, rightly so, in a hard world. So to come out from our hiding places, to lay down these ways of relating that don't close the gaps, we have to do something. We have to accept our identity as people who belong to God. We have to breathe in and breathe out the forgiveness. I belong to God. That's a breath prayer. I belong to God. I am forgiven. I can forgive. This is our identity. And we learn this by not rushing through our interactions with the king about really hard things. This, this is the place from which we can both be a Paco, showing up for forgiveness for God, from God and others, and we can be a father, thinking about who might show up if we put a sign or an ad out that offered free forgiveness for the people um, who felt like they needed it from us. I can be both Paco and father in my human relationships. I am forgiven. I can forgive. This is respiration, but we have to stand in the oxygenated place and be with the king to be able to breathe. As we do this, we let down our guard. We can grieve. We can be vulnerable. We can relax our vigilance, laying down our demands of ourselves and other people, and become like the children of God that we are, knowing that we can both be a wounder and wounded but that both are resolved by the costly grace of true forgiveness. It's hard. It really is. This is not easy. Um, it's like the nut of the gospel, and it's also um, it's a really hard thing to, thing to walk into and step through. But 
it's because God is good that we can do this. Um, I'm a how person. I always come back to how when I'm tripped up by most anything, but especially theological concepts. So to close, I would like us to think about a couple of ways we practice forgiving. One is by practicing confessing. We can forgive because we are forgiven, so we need to practice receiving forgiveness. Sometimes we're not good at forgiving people because we haven't received it, because receiving it means saying we did something wrong. We do this with God, and we do this with others, and we are graced to be in the liturgical tradition here where we can do this on a weekly basis in community with each other. Also, forgiveness means making and taking time. We look long at God. We marinate in the Psalms. We marinate in stories of forgiveness in Scripture. Forgiveness, forgiveness is a fruit of that time. It's a reflection. It talks a lot in Scripture about God's countenance and our countenance being able to reflect God's countenance. This is a reflection. It's not an imitation. It's not just doing what Jesus would do. It's being transformed and also offering it back out. It's not just time with God, though. It's time in the process. I was super encouraged to find out, scientifically speaking, that literally the number of hours you spend engaged in the process of forgiveness has a direct correlation to how much forgiveness you are able to experience doesn't matter which process you engage. So time is important. We don't rush through. My uh, therapist friend says that forgiveness is like the final stop on a long train journey, and you have to make all the stops along the way. You can't skip the anger. You can't skip the grief. You can't skip the reckoning with reality. You have to take all the stops. Finally, use your words. Your voice matters. Theologian Ray Anderson suggests that the voices we speak in impact how forgiveness will go for us. We can speak with the voice of pain rather than the voice of complaint. We can go underneath um, rather than just complaining about circumstances or people. We can speak with the voice of compassion rather than the voice of criticism. How do we come to see ourselves as just human alongside the other people, many of whom perhaps have offended us? God's forgiveness is from God's heart, and it's okay to take the time to let our heart go out to the offender as well. We can use the voice of the psalmist rather than the voice of the historian. We don't just confess our sins or recount someone else's, but we communicate with God about it. We learn to speak about the grace of divine forgiveness and its interplay with our history. So, as we come to the table this morning, we come as the forgiven ones. We come as those who have been um, magnificently set free, wildly forgiven. And this is our chance to sit in that oxygenated place and to remember um, that because of Jesus, the slave and the king have been united into one. Jesus permanently brings humans and God um, into union. And it is in this place that we are able to walk into this really beautiful and hard and mysterious gift of being a follower of Christ. So will you pray with me? Gracious God, we are humbled to be here. We are so humbled to be citizens of your kingdom, a place where this is your economy, God. Pray that we would be able to receive it this morning as we come to the table, that you would meet us with your fellowship, with your life, your power, your freedom, and help us, God, to be people of compassion and mercy, 
even as we deal in truth and reality. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.